Hello, I'm Dr. Thomas Rawson, and you're listening to another episode of Jamilcast. One of the most discussed areas of scientific innovation throughout 2023 has been that of natural language processing, the computational analysis and recreation of language and speech. I'm talking about things like ChatGPT, Google's Bard AI, amongst many others. Today, we talk with one of the Jamil Institute's PhD students, Tristan Naidu, about his research in this field applied to the world of public health. We're in a very exciting time at the moment where this is the most advanced machines we've ever seen. These things can be used as tools or aids. I think we have a responsibility to move with the developments that are happening, but also guard our hype and actually understand what they're capable of before we think that the next president is going to be ChatGPT or something like that. First, let's start with the basics. Natural language processing is but one subcategory of a far wider general area of mathematics and statistics that we call machine learning. That's a term that sounds a lot more grandiose than what it really is at its core. The basic idea behind machine learning is that we have some data set and we want to learn something from it. There's one of two ways we can approach this learning. One could be inferential, meaning that based on the data, we want to learn or understand why something has happened, or it could be predictive. And more often than not, we use it in predictive tasks. The idea behind a predictive task is that we want to predict the future based on the previous experience. The most interesting machine learning task that I've done previously was for my master's thesis. We had images of leaves that had been dehydrated over time. What we wanted to do was build a model that could manually classify the extent of dehydration in each of the leaves. Using this, we would be able to create a curve of failure over time from which we could get important plant physiological values from. What's important to note is that with this model, we would be able to apply it to the large population of plants more quickly compared to what would be able to be done by human annotators. A key thing to take away from that is that machine learning solutions are especially useful when the task is simply unfeasible for a human to have the time to do it themselves. Indeed, machine learning models appear in so many places in our lives nowadays. That basic principle Tristan outlined, you submit data and want an answer back, features heavily in our data-rich world. When you make a bank transaction, a machine learning model asks, is this transaction likely fraudulent? When you see an advert online, a machine learning algorithm has taken data on your internet search history and asked, what would be a relevant advert to show this person? Just like these examples, Tristan's PhD research considers a big set of data and investigates if we can use it to get back an answer to a specific public health question. So my PhD research is all about trying to use social media to quantify adherence to protective behaviours. So adherence to protective behaviours just means how closely was a certain policy followed or how closely was a certain behaviour followed. So an example of adherence to protective behaviour would be wearing a mask. The reason I want to use social media data is that getting behavioural data is very difficult. Currently, how this is done is there would be questionnaires which are given out, and then we would ask people certain questions. For example, have you used a mask? And they would respond. But this is quite cost-intensive and takes a lot of time. Additionally, this data is often looked at retrospectively. What I want to do is try to get some way to do this in real time so that while a decision maker is making a decision, they have an additional data point, which will be what is the current state of behavioral adherence? at a certain point in time. And the way to think about this without it sounding too scary is that a decision maker will be able to take into account how the general population feels when making a decision. 
The specific data set that Tristan uses is from Twitter, which unhelpfully has been renamed since we recorded this episode to just X. For those unaware, any person can sign up to Twitter and then make these short public posts to be seen by the world, colloquially known as a tweet. It's these messages people share that Tristan's work analyzes. But before one can begin the clever analysis, there's an awful lot of work that goes into just getting the right sort of data first of all. On average, there are around half a billion new tweets every single day. That's a lot to work with. And as you can imagine, not all of those are relevant to Tristan's question. The data I work with is tweets. And the way you get tweets is through an API. The API is just the language we use when we want to ask Twitter to return data for us. It's sort of the commands that we can say to Twitter, hi, Twitter, please, I would like all tweets that include the word COVID from the UK between these two dates. The API then translates it to language that Twitter understands. And then Twitter says, sure, here's all your data. Additionally, over the pandemic, researchers have compiled really, really, really big data sets. So we're talking in the magnitude of billions. So my idea is that I wanted to download my own data set with individual tweets based on the search terms I wanted. And then I wanted to augment this using these available data sets. The way you do this is called hydration. So it's called hydration because when you share a Twitter data set, you can only share IDs. I think it's for legal reasons from Twitter, but you're not allowed to share the full text and the full tweet. I think it's one of the ways Twitter protects its users additionally so that you don't have data sets of what users have said getting out there. And so you think of these IDs as being the dehydrated version of the full tweet, and then it's your job to take this ID and hydrate it into its full form. So all in all, using the hydrated tweets and the downloaded tweets, I think I have about 100 million tweets plus, um, somewhere in the ballpark of that amount. So we have a really big data set of different tweets. Of course, some of the tweets in there will be relevant. Certain search terms, for example, step one, which was a UK policy, you could also get a recipe that includes the term step one. So we want to remove those types of tweets. So before I dive into how we do the exact filtering, it's worth giving a bit of background about natural language processing or NLP and how tasks are solved in that space, because that's how we're going to solve this filtering task. So historically, and when I say historically, I mean in the past 10 years, because the field is evolving so quickly. Historically, tasks would be solved with very specific models. However, recently, we have things called large language models, and I'm sure most listeners have heard of ChatGPT and the like. Behind ChatGPT, it involves prompt engineering, but it also involves something called a large language model. Now, a large language model is just a statistical understanding of text. Most NLP tasks nowadays are solved using these large language models. So the general idea is you have a large language model, and then you just stack a layer on the end for the task you want. So let's return to the filtering question. What we do is we take a large language model that has some understanding of text, and then I stack a layer at the end of it, which says, is this tweet related to COVID or not? And most tasks in natural language processing nowadays are solved using this method. And that's exactly what we do for the filtering. Now that Tristan has built this computational pipeline, he can begin using these same general principles of applying a large language model to now ask various questions about what is being said within these tweets, how it's being said, and when. Remember, when you type a tweet into the computer, it's just a series of letters, a specific order of keystrokes typed on a keyboard. But when you read a tweet, you're not absorbing just a, a list of letters and spaces, you are interpreting them as diverse pieces of information. 
Your brain is a large language model that is turning the words you read into a huge array of concepts. It's not just what you're learning about. You can understand if what you're reading seems angry or overly verbose. You could make inferences about whether the person typing it seems tired or hopeful. There's a lot you could infer from just a few sentences. Tristan's research is ultimately interested in whether the language in these tweets can be used as a way to interpret how people think and act in response to public health crises. My first year was spent on looking at tweet usage. By Twitter usage, what I mean is how many times did a tweet contain a certain word? So let's use lockdown as an example. When the first lockdown was announced, we would look at how many tweets included the word lockdown. The general idea behind this is we wanted to firstly see if there was some responsiveness in terms of users to policy implementation. And secondly, we want to look at if there was any correlation between these counts or between usage and outcomes of interest. One of the big problems here is we need to take into account something called reverse causality. So using the lockdown example again, on the day a lockdown was announced, we got a really big spike in the number of tweets which included the search term lockdown. And then we wanted to understand whether there was some sort of relationship between the spike and, for example, the spike in cases. The issue with reverse causality is we know that sometimes we might get people reacting to something that's happening. The reaction might be based on them knowing that an event has occurred, but it might also work the other way around. So people might know, for example, perhaps their neighbor had COVID and their neighbor knew someone else had COVID. And based on their sort of rough consensus, they think cases are high. And we have this across lots of people. And perhaps they've tweeted before we actually have an idea that cases are high. So they would know the event before it actually happened. What we found at the end of my first year was, yes, there is a relationship between Twitter usage and epidemiological outcomes, but we couldn't go much further than that. What we decided, though, is that's a good springboard to go into looking at more complicated metrics, for example, sentiment and disinformation, which is the focus of my second year and third year. Understanding sentiment and disinformation is a step up in complexity from simply identifying the amount of discussion about disease prevalence. It's one thing to identify a huge increase in tweets about, say, lockdowns, but if you can then know if those tweets are mostly positive or mostly negative, it could be able to then tell you something about how much people are actually following these interventions, which is a very useful bit of data to have. You can have a play with sentiment analysis yourself. In this episode's show notes, you'll find a link to tweetnlp.org. Here you can see what happens when you input a sentence, hit go, and the model will tell you if that message is mostly positive, negative, or neutral. It's exactly this kind of process Tristan is applying to his multi-million tweet data set, but with a bit of custom tuning for his outcomes of interest. Sentiment's really interesting, and I suppose it's a bit more informative than tweet usage. This is starting to get into the nitty-gritty of the data and trying to extract something that I guess is a bit less common. The way we get sentiment data is very similar to what I explained regarding how we filter. The general idea is that we have some large language model which understands our tweets. Our large language model is sort of Twitter-specific. The next thing we need to do is we need to attach a layer at the end of this which gives us sentiment as an output. There are different types of sentiment or types of ways you can view sentiment. But for the most part, let's just assume it's a score between negative one and one. 
So it's negative one if it's very negative, and it's one if it's very positive. As I mentioned earlier, with certain tasks, you get a large language model and you get that final layer that has been trained already. So that final layer has seen examples of tweets already. This is the case with sentiment. We can imagine a sentiment classifier that scores between negative one and one would be similar across different types of tweets. We know what a negative tweet might look like. We know what a positive tweet might look like. So the task here is a bit different from the full train. What we do here is we take a full model that's been built and then we fine tune it slightly. The fine tuning we're doing here is we have some some model that has a general idea of sentiment with tweets, but now we want to fine tune it to be slightly more sensitive to COVID tweets. There might be certain terminology or certain words that are different in a COVID context in terms of sentiment compared to the general way people discuss things. And that's what we want to fine tune for. So what I've noticed in tweets so far is that they're really polarized. And I've also noticed that there's a class of tweets which we might struggle to catch it. So I'll speak through both separately. In terms of the polarized tweets, the tweets that are positive will be about general things. It's about hoping that we're going to get out of lockdown soon or things like that. The level of positive tweets seem to be highest at the start of the pandemic and then sort of waned off. What we notice with negative tweets is the amount of negative tweets have sort of persisted throughout. So as cases started to go down, we saw that positive tweets sort of diminished. But negative tweets stayed negative throughout and that general level had stayed high, which basically indicates that people who took it upon themselves to tweet very negatively have sort of stuck around until the end. What we also notice in terms of negative tweets is that they don't express much of an opinion. It's just negativity, if that makes sense. So it'll be sort of sometimes very vulgar or sometimes tweets not really directed at anything much or not saying much, but just expressing negativity. The second class of tweets I mentioned, which is interesting, is what we struggle to capture is tweets that are both positive and negative at the same time. So as an example, there may be a tweet which says, I hate lockdown, but I'm so glad that I have my family with me. Those are the sort of tweets that we have that are in between that we're still working towards. Working towards answering these problems is, well, the fundamental idea of any research. There's a saying in academia of new work being done on the shoulders of giants. Hundreds of years of scientific pursuit laid down, we use the discoveries of centuries of people that came before us to learn just a tiny bit more. In Tristan's case, when you're working in an area that's so turbocharged with interest and innovation, the principles he seeks to build on aren't necessarily hundreds of years old, they might just be hundreds of days old. So that advance has been really helpful and and the recent boom and amount of energy and money and development that's going into the field across academia and across industry has been really helpful because there's new technologies coming out. A lot of these models, the large language models that I've referred to, the sort of framework for using them has become really popular. And I'm sure you've realized with a lot of my answers across all of them, I sort of start with saying, I'm going to use a large language model and stack something on the end. Why it's not so great is that it's really hard to keep on top of everything. So at the start of my PhD, I sort of read papers, I looked at things. And then you fast forward one month and you see 20 new things have sort of come out. And you fast forward another month, of those 20 things, five have been scrapped and you have 20 more. So it's really hard to keep on top of what's sort of the best. And I think at some point, and it's probably the point I'm reaching now, is you have to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to use these models, even though something better might come out. Because I think if you try to keep up with the latest developments, you're never going to end up finishing. Now, those who follow business and tech news might be thinking about a certain fly in the ointment of late for Tristan. 
This morning, billionaire Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, has taken control of Twitter. Elon Musk has bought Twitter for approximately $44 billion. Renaming his own account Chief Twit and proclaiming the bird is free. Yes, at the end of 2022, Twitter went under new management and has been making drastic changes to the access of the platform. These surprise changes have caused significant difficulties for Tristan and other researchers. So at the start of my PhD, we particularly chose Twitter for two reasons. Reason one was that tweets were really short, and that means people had specific thoughts which are easier to capture. But equally as important, Twitter historically has always been really accessible to the academic community, and that was a big draw to Twitter. The academic API, which we discussed, I just needed to go through an application process, but then access was free and was really powerful. What sort of happened over time is it's been a game of cat and mouse where we weren't sure whether the academic API would last. And as of earlier this year, it's officially been cut off for all academics that I know. So currently, there's no access to Twitter anymore. So the data set is the data set I have. The only options available now are two paid for options. The cheapest doesn't give you much access. So you're stuck with either paying a lot of money, which is inaccessible to most people, or not using Twitter at all. It's difficult because it seems that most social media companies have taken to the idea that information is valuable. We see similar trends happening. For example, Reddit has also paywalled all their data. It's something that the academic community is scrambling to try and figure out. But it is very difficult because a lot of research has started with the idea that Twitter would be available. And it also means that sort of the applicability of your research afterwards, it becomes a bit more difficult to apply because, you know, people aren't going to be able to get the same data that you've been sort of looking at or building on. That initial idea when Tristan first started his PhD was to look at ways of innovating and modernising the way we monitor public adherence. We still currently use the tired and true method of getting a group of people together and asking them a carefully constructed questionnaire. Now that Tristan's two years into his research, I was curious for his insights into what he's learned about the feasibility of changing the way we do these studies. In my head at least, I think it might be used in addition to these types of questionnaires because the questionnaires that are given out, you get to specify the demographics of people you want to give it to, which I'm unable to do with tweets. And secondly, you're able to ask way more detailed and more specific questions. And to be honest, there's no way to directly account for this. And this is one of the reasons why the tweet metric I get probably won't replace them. Why I think it is useful is, as I mentioned before, you're unable to get a questionnaire to many people and get real-time output. So when there is another disease crisis or if there is another pandemic, I think an amazing discovery would be that we are actually able to get some metric of inheritance from text. If we're able to extract an additional data point that a decision maker could use during a disease crisis, that would sort of be first prize. AI innovations are ramping up. Huge streams of new funding and industrial interest are driving a boom in AI research. And you don't have to look too hard to find an awful lot of opinions and claims that it's going to be the downfall of humanity, that thousands of work sectors will be made obsolete, and even some people sincerely worried about a Terminator-style future. I was keen to hear Tristan's thoughts on where this wave is leading and if we should be worried. There's been a lot of hype about AI at the moment, but this is not the first time there has been this much hype. So I'll tell you a story that's well known. It's actually not a story. I'll tell you what was in the news about 60, 70 years ago. So there was someone called Dr. Frank Rissenblatt who was commissioned by the Navy to build a machine. And this machine was going to do something really, really simple. So Frank Rissenblatt made 
a machine that implemented a very simple algorithm. And a few years later, he made some wild claims and the New York Times published an article which said, we're going to have a machine that's sentient, that walks, talks and can learn in the next five years. And so the Navy was obviously very proud of this. And fast forward again, another few years, someone released a book which basically disproved what he said and also showed that perhaps models aren't as far along as people thought. And this led to something called an AI winter. So we had this big boom and we had an AI winter. And then around the 80s, we had another boom. And then after that, we had another winter. And so at the moment, we're in this sort of third wave or third boom. And granted, this is the biggest boom that we've ever had. But it's important to note and just be aware that the sort of cyclical patterns of booms and winters have happened before in the past. And it's also important to note that hype is always the reason that has sort of brought these booms to an end. It's that people get really excited and sort of lose sight of what these things can actually do and the limitations and capabilities. And they get so hyped up and to the point that they actually end up failing and that causes a winter. So I think the public should also just be aware of what these things can do. And it's our responsibility to do a bit of research because hype can often be the sort of detriment to progress. PhD students like Tristan, who, across Imperial College London, are exploring and considering new ways of addressing public health challenges that we've never tried before. That sentence, by the way, was uh, 56% positive and 43% neutral. For more mostly positive public health insight, we'll be back next week with another episode of Jamilcast. I've been Tom Rawson, and thanks for listening. Listening.